it's my pleasure. I got to continue my recording here. Um, it's my pleasure actually to introduce Dr. Pam Sullivan. She's currently the chief clinical officer at Landmark Health. And the thing that I got says she has over 35 years of experience in healthcare, starting her career as a physical therapist. So you must have been the only licensed physical therapist at four years of age is all I can figure. Um, anyway, so she went on, got her doctorate and, uh, and, M and she got her MBA at Pemba, of course, in 2015. Uh, internal medicine, worked in the emergency department for a lot of her career, and now is leading as the chief clinical officer at Landmark Health. And Landmark Health is kind of one of those unique organizations, uh, and I'm going to let her tell you more about it because she's deeply in, ensconced in it, <clears throat> but they provide continuity of care. And quite honestly, that's one of the things that I hope is going to become quite common for all of our graduates and all the folks who are providing care across the continuum, because quite honestly, we're going to have to understand how all this works and how the system comes together. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the meeting over to Dr. Pam Sullivan. Thank you, thank you, Pam, for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Don, Kate, and Tom. Um, it really is an honor to speak to the PEMBA staff, alumni, students, and friends. Um, I, I can't tell you um, what a privilege it is. So I really appreciate this opportunity. I'd also like to introduce uh, Chris Johnson, who's on the line with us today. Chris is the uh, vice president and the head of corporate development at Landmark Health. And his team has oversight for direct contracting at Landmark. So Chris will be monitoring the chat box and um, answering questions with us along during this talk today. So appreciate Chris's participation. Throughout this talk, I'm gonna mention Landmark. We'll talk about Landmark and the values that Landmark brings but I'm not here to promote Landmark. So as you fill out your CME, um, just remember that that's not my goal to promote Landmark. My goal is just to use it as an example to drive home some of the concepts that we're gonna talk about today. If you're playing along at home, you can guess how many times I'm gonna use the word value today um, before this talk starts and, and just mark down every time we say that word because that will be the word of the day is, is value. So um, I know many of you are listening to this recording, but, um, or, or not participating actively right now as, as we record this meeting, but I will ask for some participation of those of you that are on the line and um, really will count on you because we all know how awkward silence can be as a presenter. So um, without further ado, um, if you can launch the poll for me, Tom, and, and for those that are on the line, we'll get a bit of a feeling as to what individuals on the line know about direct contracting and how active you are with the direct contracting. So the first question is, are you participating in direct contracting? Um, no, yes is a standard direct contracting entity. Yes is a new entrant DCE. Yes is a high needs DCE. Yes, but I'm unsure of how my organization is participating.
So Tom, why don't we close this poll? It looks like those that are on the line with us right now um, are not actively involved with direct contracting. So in our second poll, if you can launch that question, it's what is your knowledge on direct contracting? Do you have any knowledge at all? Um, very little, some familiarity, or are you very comfortable? Can those of you see the polls? I can see it, but it's not letting me vote. It's not letting you vote. So that's why we're not getting any voting back. Yeah, I, I, I can't vote, unfortunately. I, okay. It, it might be safe to assume, though, that we have some familiarity. I think probably we're middle ground. I bet that's how we would come up with this. Right. <laughs> this, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Appreciate, appreciate your trying. Um, technology at its best, right? So I'd like to go over, if you can um, jump ahead in slides for me, Tom, to go over some of our goals of this presentation. This is going to be um, a, a very high level overview of what direct contracting is. I'm not going to get into any of the nitty gritty. But um, if you do have more detailed questions, we're happy to answer them. And at the end of this presentation are both mine and Chris's email. So you can reach out to us and we're happy to answer any questions that you have. And then once we go through some of these um, high level basic concepts, we'll uh, talk a little bit about what considerations you need to explore to join such a program. So let's um, jump to the next slide where we'll talk about some definitions. And like I said, I'm gonna start at a very high level. So for some of you, uh, this may be very um, basic, but let's just make sure that we have everybody on the same page here. So first we'll talk about CMMI, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation or the Innovation Center within CMS. And it is their job to support the development and testing of new and innovative healthcare payment and service delivery models. GPDC stands for Global and Professional Direct Contracting, and this is the model that we're gonna to discuss today. And last, we have DCEs or Direct Contracting Entities. You will see a link on the slide that you can click on that will give you all 53 direct contracting entities that have been chosen um, by CMS or by CMMI. They are no longer accepting any applications into this five-year program with one caveat, and that is for the next generation ACO. So every time CMMI launches a pilot or has a program, when it ends, what do you do with these organizations? Because they don't want to go back in time to um, a model that was less effective. So they are allowing, as the next gen ACO pilots end, they are allowing them to join as a DCE if they would like to. So next slide, please, Tom. Let's talk a little bit about what direct contracting is, um, what this whole program is about. So it's basically a value-based care model that's gonna replace your traditional fee-for-service and it's gonna offer both capitated and partially capitated population-based payment systems. So again, you're gonna to get to choose two things and I'll talk about this a number of times through the talk. You can talk, talk, uh, choose your degree of risk as a direct contracting entity 
and you can choose your degree of capitation as a direct contracting entity. And why is that important? Because there's a lot of combinations as to how a direct contracting entity um, can have a relationship in this, both the risk and the financial portion with, with CMS. And why it's important is that it allows for very flexible cash flows for these direct contracting entities. But they get a monthly payment and they know what that payment's gonna be. So it's very predictable for them. They can um, target different payments um, to uh, participants, so to, to the um, physicians and, and other providers that are participating in the DCEs. They have a lot of control over how they contract and how they're going to um, build those relationships. And by doing all of this, it allows them to um, create some value-based propositions in that care model that they will um, that be trying to put forward. And the other big piece to the direct contracting model is that they really recognize how difficult it is to care for these complex chronically ill populations. And we'll go through some of that as the talk goes along. A big piece of this is that this model is going to reward innovation. The more innovative you are, or I shouldn't even say the, the more successful you are at developing these innovative ways to value, the more that you're going to be rewarded. So they're really rewarding this innovation and value-based care over volume. And the primary care population um, you know, we, we know that their reimbursement rates are quite low and the number of individuals going into primary care have certainly decreased and um, the, the um, cost of doing business by the time you're done paying off your all of your school loans and get through your residency and the whole bit um, to be able to afford a house and just the regular everyday things is very hard as, as we've learned um, with at least in the internal medicine and in the work that I've done through ACP. So if there's a way that we can increase revenue for primary care by rewarding them for, uh, for value over volume, um, this is a great benefit of the program. Another um, aspect of this program is that it broadens the base of participants within CMS. So groups like Landmark that previously could not participate in programs like this now have an opportunity to participate. Um, Risk-based um, risk medical groups also have this opportunity. So this is a new um, piece that, that we haven't seen in programs prior. It's empowering the beneficiaries, the patients themselves to align with different direct contracting entities based on what they're offering. So we already know that different Medicare Advantage programs um, will offer different things based on uh, how well a program does. And this allows you to take it to the next level. And it also allows um, these direct contracting entities to market directly to beneficiaries in ways that they haven't allowed. The last big piece of this puzzle that the, or, or program that they're doing, I shouldn't say puzzle, is um, that they're decreasing the burden to the primary care provider, um, which is really important. So a lot less time with paperwork and a lot more time with that face-to-face -face interaction 
or the other pieces that you need to put in place uh, as we learned with, with the um, home models for patients. So next slide, please, Tom. So how is, is this going to transform healthcare? How will this model help us transform what we do today? And I'm gonna repeat a bit of what I said on the last slide, just to let it sink in and, and have you really have a good understanding of how this program will, will transform healthcare. So by developing these value-based programs, by developing programs that are gonna decrease the cost of care while improving the quality in this very high cost sector of patients, we know that, that this uh, frail chronic group of patients costs by far the most out of any group to care for. So if, if these direct contracting entities can be innovative and develop ways to decrease that cost, this is phenomenal. By decreasing those administrative burdens, um, this has been huge. We know the burnout rates. We know each program, how you have to um, realign your staff and increase your staffing. And it actually increased costs to be able to implement a lot of things that Medicare has implemented over the years. So this program is trying to decrease those burdens. By rewarding value, uh, value over volume, another huge uh, piece of the puzzle, getting rid of that traditional fee for service. So, um, and then the last piece is looking at that, that burnout rate. So we know at Landmark that when we recruit physicians, I can't tell you the number that tell me that they are interested in Landmark because they wanna have time with their patients. And when they're on a schedule where every 15 minutes they have to see a new patient, and then you get this frail, chronically ill patient that comes in, they, they're not gonna take up 15 minutes of your time. They're gonna take up a lot longer. And you're still not gonna address everything that you need to in this patient. And it's creating a lot of burnout. So if we can decrease that burnout um, and, and allow physicians to really spend the time with patients that they want to, a huge benefit. So next slide, please, Tom. So let's talk a little bit about how these value-based care organizations create and capture value. And this is gonna be another area where I ask for your participation. So Tom, I can't see whose hands are raised. So if you can um, raise your hand and Tom will um, call on you to, to give us some examples of how you do value-based care in your organization. We'd love to hear some examples from you. And hopefully we have enough individuals on the line that can provide some examples. Pam, could, could I maybe make a comment here? Because one of the things yes. that I, and, and I think I've told you that because uh, I, I work with NCQA, and so I see a lot of healthcare organizations of various kinds, uh, utilization management organizations, care management organizations, et cetera. And I think the, to me, the question, what I'm taking from the question is the need for, number one, the need for data. These organizations have to have data about the individuals that are within their care so that they have an idea of what their health status, what the individual's health status is at various times. And yeah, what I've seen also is the need to aggregate 
the data into uh, populations and segment those populations so they can do resource planning and actually address the needs of those populations. Is that kind of what you're, where you're going here? Is that, is that what you're? Um, yeah, you're speaking my language. So I'm gonna give some examples of what Landmark does. And, and that is, you, you just gave one of my examples. So uh, yeah, and, and I apologize when you see me look up on the screen with the way my setup I is for me, for me to make eye contact. So for those of you who are watching this later, um, you can understand why um, I seem to be looking off into space at times. But um, Tom, do we have any other um, volunteers out there? If not, I'll, I'll go through some examples that I have. Uh, no, we don't. Okay, no problem here. Um, but Don, thank you. Um, yeah, so let me give a, a big picture of this and then I'm gonna give you some examples from some organizations, um, including Landmark. So I think the first piece of this to be successful is that you need to take clinical and financial responsibility for the total cost of care of the patient. So Medicare parts A and B, you can't just take a piece. Um, and as we talk a little bit about Landmark and what we do, we take, um, we have a, a cohort of patients that will qualify for our program when we contract with Medicare Advantage or an other um, risk-based organization. And we take uh, responsibility, we take risk on that entire cohort, whether they engage in our population or not. Um, so that is really key, not only um, do we take the entire cohort, but the entire patient, every, every piece of cost of care within an individual patient. You have to invest very heavily in primary care and other services that will proactively manage these patients. And there are a lot of community-based solutions out there that aren't leveraged enough. And that's another piece of this. And with these programs, as you develop them, is that you don't bill on the fee-for-service basically any surplus that you have is how you are rewarded for the job that you've done and the work that you've done. So let me give you some landmark examples. Um, 10,000 foot view of landmark, elevated speech of landmark. We assume 100% risk on all of our contracts for all of our patients. And we contract again with risk-based organizations, Medicare Advantage program. And we provide care in the home of the chronically ill patients 24 seven. So we take 100% full upside risk on these patients. We have very, very large interdisciplinary teams. So we've got pharmacy and nutrition and social worker behavioral health in addition to our nurses and, and um, nurse practitioners, physicians, we have palliative care. Um, so I, I know I'm probably missing somebody on the team. My apologies there, but very, very large teams of, of individuals that help manage each patient because we know how complex they are. And we do not bill our patients anything, um, which is another kind of cool feature of this, although it is hard to get patients to engage with Landmark when we reach out to them and say, hey, we're gonna offer you 24 seven care in your home, no cost to you whatsoever. They do think we're a scam. So um, our data analytics team, so Don talked about data. We have a data analytics team that I never thought I'd be excited by data analytics, but I'm excited by data analytics. Um, 
one of the examples, and there's so many examples as we look at, at our population health and what are drivers um, for readmissions and uh, all sorts of things, looking at all different populations. But they have come up with this proprietary algorithm that looks at, um, I think it's 21 different variables that predicts the likelihood of a patient being admitted to the hospital within the next 30 days. And therefore we can target our resources and our touch points to this group of patients. We have lists of highest spend and this and that, but that doesn't correlate to admission rates always. So this allows us to target that group very, very specifically, which is really, um, really makes an impact. And then um, through these interventions, we're able to decrease hospitalizations, decrease length of stays. Imagine if um, you're in the office and you're kind of, do I admit this patient? Don't I admit this patient? I feel better if they were in the hospital and watched. But if you can call us up and say, hey, Pam, I've got a patient in my office right now. I think they probably be, need to be admitted to the hospital, but maybe we could get by not admitted. Can you send somebody by the house to check on them later today? And we go out and we check on them later that day and the next day, and we could avoid that hospitalization or help with that safe discharge planning to get that patient out of the hospital sooner and decrease length of stay. Um, medication reconciliation is huge. Home situations. Um, I can't tell you, you know, patients go into the, the doctor's office and they put on their Sunday best. But when you go into their home and you see them in their Sunday loungewear, and um, their medications are expired or, you know, they've got the full pill bottles or one of my favorites was a patient that poured all of their pills into this one bowl. And when they didn't feel well, they just took a handful of them. Um, you'll find empty alcohol bottles in patients that live alone. So there are things that we'll find in the home that others won't see. We also really target social determinants of health. So we've got a lot of screening tools that we use um, and behavioral health depression is huge in this patient population. But we're also looking at how do you get rides to, to the doctor's office and, and other um, impacts of those, the, the social determinants. And, and you can imagine what a big impact this was with COVID and the shutdown and everybody staying at home. So um, this really had big impacts on patients. So let's turn to another organization, um, Aora Health. Um, now they are not a participant in the direct con uh, contracting, but what Aora did was they looked at healthcare coaches and they hired all these healthcare coaches that were not medically trained, but gave them training in how to support patients. And then they invested in technology and their systems also helped significantly decrease cost, decreased emissions. Oak Street, another great, great um, organization, and they are a direct contracting entity. Um, they invested a lot in technology, and this statistic really surprised me as I started looking at the direct contracting. Average um, total cost of care for primary care services, anybody know the answer? What percent? Wild guess? Primary care services? Mm-hmm. Percentage? Total cost of care. What percent goes to primary care? Oh, total cost. I don't know what cost. I, I couldn't guess that. Total percent is 3%. So I was really yeah. surprised by that, um, yeah. that it's only 3% of total costs go to primary care. 
Um, so what? Oh, you're can, an internist. You know better than that. I know, I know, but it still surprised me. Um, yeah. But um, the uh, what they did was they really invested so that seven percent of these costs went toward primary care services. So they invested a lot. Um, in technology and other ways to deliver primary care. So they increased that total cost of primary care, but they more than made it up by decreasing um, admission rates and, and readmit. So those are just a few examples. So we'll go on to the next slide, Tom. Um, and let's talk a little bit about why this model is needed. Um, we know that fee-for-service program is broken. Um, it's rewarding volume. It's not rewarding quality. It can promote a lot of unnecessary testing, and, and I hate to say that. You know, we, we want everyone to be ethical, um, but that is definitely um, one of the factors in here. Um, it doesn't encourage investment in technology or, or new services. It, there's just no incentive to do that whatsoever. The, the incentive is see more patients, get your volume through and make more money. Um, we've talked about the impact that this has had on primary care and the burnout rates and, and a decrease in primary care. So I, I think that we can see that this program will really, really drive what's needed in healthcare right now. And that's reducing costs while making sure that we increase the value. So before I get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of the program, I wanna stop there, see if, um, Chris, if you have any additional comments or if anybody else has any additional comments that they'd like to add or make or any questions that you may have. I don't have a thing to raise my hand. There you go, Don. Raise my hand here. Um, you mentioned that you're 100% at risk. Is that, and then you mentioned upside risk. Are you also downside risk as well? I should have said 100% downside risk. We're 100% yeah. down and upside, but I should have stressed the downside risk. So that was a, a talking point error there, but thank you for, for clarifying well, that. And we the only reason I bring it up is because it's kind, of, it's kind of important and it kind of bespeaks to the type of contract you have to have in terms of the kind of care that you provide. And that to me is one of the keys to success as we move to the value-based contracting concept. Um, we went through this 40, it's almost 40 years ago now. It's hard to believe. Uh, you were five at the time. Huh? You were five years old at the time. Uh, yeah, more or less, give, give or take, yeah. You were, but not me. <laughs> but long story short, um, we—I mean, nobody was ready for it back then. Everybody was just flummoxed by it, and a lot of primary care docs. I remember being in situations where you'd get—we uh, we had, for example, one DME vendor, a, a durable medical equipment vendor, when I was working in a health plan many years ago. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, oh, gosh, you're going to pay us every month a fixed amount. And, we had, and, and it took them about two weeks to figure out that they were going to go broke very quickly because they were providing home vents and things like that. So understanding what that means, I think, is very important. And um, I'm glad that you guys are successful doing it because it takes a tremendous amount of data, takes a tremendous amount of attention to detail, 
And it also requires a great deal of communication. And so I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing how you guys are doing that. Yeah, so um, it, it's, um, it's pretty cool. When we first started, we had a lot of shared risk contracts as we were learning. Um, but now that we've learned how to do it and we know how successful we are, we take um, 100% downside risk. So, and, and um, yeah, so, so with the contracts, it's, it's really cool because you can't lose by contracting with Landmark. That you have nothing to lose and only to gain. Um, so that's a great part of the program. We now see all these startup uh, companies and some that are a couple of years in that are replicating a lot of what Landmark does. Some are doing some point solutions, um, uh, targeting just urgent care visits or not doing the complete model of Landmark. Um, and some are trying to totally replicate what Landmark does, but I think we stay ahead of the curve um, and is that we're constantly innovating and we've got the data analytics. We have data from when we started seven years ago that these other companies don't have. So they can't um, look at some of the outcomes me outcome measures and reasons as for how we got from point A to B the way Landmark can do that. So, um, something that really um, has been unique to us um, and has us stand out. So, Chris, are there any other comments that you'd like to add? I know Chris is traveling, so hopefully he's not. Oh, but he may not. Yeah. Okay. Can I ask one other quick question? Absolutely. Um, and that is, we talk about the continuum of care, particularly post-hospital care, and do you? Does Landmark actually get into palliative care and hospice care as well as this, the, the uh, care that you provide under the GDPC? Yeah, great, great question. So um, that actually was um, some of the examples I was gonna give, but I was trying not to uh, toot my horn too much at Landmark. So, but thank you for asking. And we didn't even set that up. Um, so our post-discharge visit program is huge, transitions of care. So it's not just post-discharge visit, um, which is hugely important. And, um, you know, I, I shared an example with some about my dad just being hospitalized, um, having a laminectomy at age 88. And what was a two-month recovery 20 years ago, um, he was at the same point in his recovery and under a week, 20 years later, 20 years older same exact procedure um, with how we got there. And when you look at things like his medication reconciliation, um, would have been a mess had he not had myself or Landmark services there. So um, are, are those home services getting there or what home services are needed when we try to plan that in the post-discharge planning, but we can't. But you put Landmark in that home at the day of discharge and we can really um, bridge those gaps. Um, we talked a little bit about um, a primary care physician being able to um, call us or a specialist calling us. Um, maybe it's a CHF exacerbation or something else going on. Maybe it's um, a patient that needs IV fluids or, or something of that nature. So we're doing that 24 seven care. We're going out in the middle of the night to do urgent visits, um, whatever a patient needs. Maybe they fell and they need suturing. 
and we're always working toward a patient goal. I can tell you the number of times an elderly patient has come into the ED, fell and hit their head. Maybe they're on anticoagulation, maybe they're not, but we always get that CT head and C spine. And you can predict when you have a lot of experience, which, which ones will be positive, which scans will be negative. Maybe you're gonna miss a couple here and there just on clinical judgment. But when you're working with this group of population, we truly are working toward their goal. And if their goal is not to go to the hospital after their fall, not to go to the hospital with um, a bad CHF exacerbation, we don't send them. Um, so another example I'll give you is um, early on when we launched a market in Ohio, we had a patient that was frequently being admitted and being intubated for CHF. And they decided they had enough. They weren't going to the hospital anymore. So they call on a Friday evening with an exacerbation of CHF. We managed that patient throughout the weekend, um, frequent visits, two visits a day. Come Monday, um, we got them an appointment with their PCP and they said that they felt better than they had in years. Um, avoided an intubation, avoided a hospitalization and by avoiding those things, they didn't get deconditioned and they turned around better and they felt better. So um, all of that is in there. The palliative care is um, a track that Landmark is also really, really proud of. Um, we have a lead palliative, well, we have palliative care leads in every one of our markets. And then we have um, physician oversight of our palliative care track. So palliative care being different than hospice is providing quality of care. And in all of our patients, because we're dealing with the sickest of the sick, we address advanced care directors from day one. But at the same time that we go through this, we're watching um, frailty scores and other metrics, and we can see who's on a decline. And when a patient reaches a certain point, we put a palliative care visit in place, and that's combined visit with the social worker and with our provider. And the whole time you were with the patient, it's not to check their blood pressure or, or do their med reconciliation or anything else. The whole visit is geared toward having these discussions, what a patient's wishes are, what their end of life um, wishes are, getting family members and getting caretakers on board so that, again, we're adhering to a patient's wishes, not the family's wishes. Um, when the time comes to enter hospice, we are uh, making that transition easy so that the time spent with the patient at that end of life is quality and it's not um, families feeling guilty, um, any fighting that might go on, a patient feeling guilty because the family wants one thing, they want another. So these transitions are very smooth and we work very closely with hospice to do that so that um, end of life care is um, greater than 30 days on hospice. It's one of our key metrics that we measure. So again, thank you for bringing that up, Don. Great. Let's advance a little bit into um, nuts and bolts of the direct contracting model. So um, if you can go to the next slide, we'll look a little bit at the timeline um, for this model. So next slide, please, Tom. Great, thank you. So the program went live on April 1st of this year, but starting back in October was an implementation period so that direct contracting entities could align their beneficiaries and 
and align some of their programs and, and get the ball rolling. But the actual performance period started on April um, 8th, uh, I'm sorry, April 1st, April 1st of this year. And um, there is a deferment until January of 2022 if DCEs want to defer to starting in, in December of uh, January of 2022. The program is five years and will end in 2026. So next slide, please. Let's talk a little bit about the different types of direct contracting entities. Um, so this is kind of cool because it's not one size fits all. So first you have your standard DCEs and your standard DCEs are those that have a lot of experience in, in Medicare, uh, Medicare Advantage programs. So um, they know how to manage these patients and um, there may be some duels in here as well. In order to qualify as a standard DCE, you need 5,000 beneficiaries, 5,000 patients at the start um, to qualify for this program. And again, they have a lot of experience in how to manage this population. The next DCE is a new entrant DCE, and this is where Landmark is. Um, organizations that haven't traditionally participated in this program. So we start with zero beneficiaries. So there's a lot for us to think about as to um, how we get um, providers involved, how we get beneficiaries involved. So there's a lot of pieces that we need to think about. And in our model, we're not the PCP for the patient. So now we're going to become the PCP for patients. And instead of patients qualifying through the contracts that we have. So if we contract with a Medicare Advantage program or a risk-based um, organization, we're using their patient population and seeing who qualifies into our program based on um, chronic conditions. And again, another proprietary scoring system that we've used with our data analytics to see which patients are gonna benefit the most from our program. We wanna put our resources in that group where we know we'll have an impact. Um, but now we can go out and um, direct, um, directly recruit these beneficiaries into the landmark program, which we couldn't do before. So also, because this is our MBA program, think about that from a business perspective. Landmark was very dependent on who we could contract with. Now we've got this whole base of patients that we can pull from, which is another revenue resource for our company. So in this, um, this group, you need um, 1,000 by the end of the first year um, and 5,000 beneficiaries by the end of performance year five. And then there's the high needs population um, DCE. This is your PACE programs, your program of all-inclusive care of the elderly. Um, so again, it's, it's mostly Medicare Advantage, but you can have some duels in here. And because this is a much smaller population, much higher cost population, but a much smaller population, you need 250 beneficiaries to start in this pool, and you only need 1,400 by the end of performance tier five. There was another group on here, which is the Medicaid-based um, organizations. Um, They've opted, so they were going to add Medicare into this pool, and this was one that they looked at, but they have decided not to offer this as a DCE at this time. Will it come along in the future? Possibly, but at this point in time, um, it's not going to be offered. 
So on the next slide, we're gonna take a look at our beneficiaries um, and how beneficiaries can align um, to the different DCEs. So first is voluntary alignment and voluntary alignment will always take precedence over claims-based alignment. Um, so any beneficiary who chooses a PCP that's aligned with a specific DCE, um, they will be in this program. This is how you will get reimbursed based on these individuals that are in the program. And we talked a little bit earlier about how you can proactively um, recruit patients into these programs. And here's something that's also um, new to this program as well with respect to beneficiaries, benefit enhancements. So uh, there is a list, a long list of, of benefit enhancements. And, and one example is waiving that um, three-day to SNF qualification so that you can admit patients directly to a SNF without a three-day hospitalization, um, making that whole process a lot more streamlined and, and more cost-effective as well. But any incremental cost to these benefits that um, a, a DCE chooses to put into their program is at the cost of the DCE. So that those costs associated with these benefits enhancement gets charged back to the DCE. But the idea is, is that these benefit enhancements are going to decrease your overall cost of care. So you're going to make it up. But you, you can choose from this list and um, it does need to be approved. But this is one way in which you can market what you can do as a DCE different from a more traditional program. And then you've got your claim space. So imagine a new entrant who doesn't have a lot of alignment. That's going to be more of a claims based DCE initially. And they'll do a two-year look back for um, patients that, that don't have a voluntary alignment and see where they, they have aligned in the past. So... Let's talk on the next slide about um, the relationships that the DCEs have with providers, because not only are you trying to align patients with, within your um, DCE program, but you need to align your, your providers as well and recruit providers to be in your direct contracting entity. So these are divided into two groups. First are participant providers and the others are preferred providers. So your participated participant providers, the way I think of them is they're all in. They enter into a negotiated payment settlement with the direct contracting entity. So instead of taking a fee for service per visit or um, per initial visit, um, they have this negotiated payment where the DCE pays them directly. So they will submit claims to Medicare, um, but Medicare will pay the DCE, not pay them and they will get paid the amount that they have contracted with the DCE. Um, they can then participate in the shared serving. So if you've got a surplus at the end, they're eligible to receive um, a portion of that based on how they contract with the DCE. And the DCEs can be very creative in how they contract with um, participants. So, for example, if you've got, let's say, a piece of technology that there's been pushback on participant providers using in the past, and you feel that this brings value-based care, or you can gather that data that Don was talking about to provide more value-based care, you can uh, write into these contracts as a part of participation is that 
you need to use this technology. And um, by, by um, entering into this, um, you know, why would I want to enter into this? I have the, the possibility of having greater revenues um, if all is said and done and if we do this well together. They are responsible, the participant providers are responsible for reporting the quality. And we'll talk a little bit about the quality metrics and how this is so different from the standard programs. Um, and then they participate in these benefit enhancements that we talked about as well. For the preferred, preferred providers, they negotiate with the direct contracting entity, but they may only negotiate a portion of their reimbursement. So a portion may come from the direct contracting entity and the rest would come from, from traditional fee-for-service. So they're not quite all in. Um, they can be, but they're, they're usually not. Um, and they will participate in that shared savings, but they are, they're cut of that shared service, uh, savings that, that uh, revenue surplus at the end will be less. So that's a little bit of the difference between the two kinds of providers. But again, as a direct contracting entity, you really have to think creatively, how am I gonna drive this value and how am I gonna contract with these um, providers to drive this value? Pam, so could, I ask, yeah, could I ask absolutely. you a question? Absolutely, jump in any time. Yeah. Your, the, the participating providers, I'm assuming, are capitated? Yes. Okay, yes. so you've got cap providers and then still fee for service, but like in the shared savings program, the Medicare is promulgated for the last five or six years now. Um, what percentage? Do you, do you have an idea of what percentage of your providers are capped versus those that are still in a modified fee-for-service program? I do not have those numbers, and I would think it would vary by direct contracting entity, um, but I do not have that okay. data. Well, and, and the reason I ask is, you know, the, the physicians are one cost, but you've also got a number of other. I, I go back to that DME example that I had, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if these organizations don't understand the financial risk that they're taking, it can sometimes be a challenge. And I'm wondering if you've yeah. met any challenges in your relationships with these different uh, entities. So we're still very early on. Um, and um, Chris, I don't know, again, I don't know if Chris has made it on the line with his travel, if you have heard of any examples yet. I think it's too early to have that. I think the more um, traditional participants in the DCE programs, um, they probably have a little more experience, but as a new entrant, um, we're not there yet. Well, so. it only took us about two weeks in 10 care. <laughs> they figured it out go. real quick. That's why well, I Well, and the other, the other piece of this, um, I love the cat, Kate, is that... Um, Chris's team has oversight of this, so I'm a little more distant from it. I understand. Uh, I understand. Chris asked me to tell you to remind you that he had to get on a plane or something. He was so he's not online right now. Yes, I knew he was traveling today. So um, yes. So um, let's look um, a little bit about the different payment options, and I'm referring to payment options from Medicare to the DCEs, not between the DCEs and the um, participants. So um, 
So the DCEs, um, the, when you enter into this, you have a choice. Let me just check my time here. Um, okay, so the DCEs have, have the, they have to choose their degree of risk and their degree of capitation. And I'm gonna go through this slide quick so we can jump ahead to some other things. But basically by deciding how your cash flows work um, and, and making these decisions, it allows you to invest in the technology and these other programs to provide that value-based care. So let me jump ahead real quick because I think the next two slides are gonna be really key and I wanna make sure we get those in before we have the end of time here. So DCE has to choose what they want their risk arrangement to be and what they want their capitation option. So there's a lot of, as you can see, um, kind of spaghetti diagrams that you can make here as to combinations. So first is risk. Do you wanna take on professional risk, which is a 50-50 shared arrangement with Medicare? Or do you wanna take on global risk in which you have 100% upside and downside? So that's your first decision that you need to make. The second is you need to choose your capitation. So primary care capitation just refers to the primary care services and you can elect up to 7%. So you can do anywhere from that three to that 7% option. And then you can even take advance payment on everything, remembering that you're gonna have to pay all of the um, participants that are in it. So, and then you've got that total care capitation the total care um, basically means that you're gonna be responsible for 100%, not just the primary care portion. And there's a withhold by Medicare every year and that guarantees their savings. And that withhold increases over time as, as you get better, as, as the DCs get better in what they do, they increase that withhold and CMS um, also gets rewarded more for that. And I didn't get into the benchmark as to how they determine what these um, payments are, but there's a, a huge calculation for benchmarks and, and it looks at um, different geographies and payments that have traditionally been made and, and prior reimbursements, um, so prior claims data. So let's jump to the next slide and try to put this together a little bit. And this is directly from CMS, if you go to their web, web page on direct contracting. Um, so basically the direct contracting, um, the DCE decides which capitation they want, okay? Do they want primary care? Do they want total care? If you take the risk of the professional, that's the 50-50 risk, you have to choose primary care. But if you choose to take um, on global, which is 100% upside and downside, you can choose your capitation just based on primary care or the total care. So next you submit your claims, the provider submit their claims to CMS. And if you're a preferred provider, you get reimbursed zero by CMS um, and the DCE will reimburse that, that participant provide or that preferred provider. The participant provider, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting them backwards here. Um, the participant providers, um, they will get zero reimbursement from CMS, but they will get reimbursed by direct contracting. The preferred providers will go more by how their direct, um, how the DCE contracted with them. And if you're not associated with any DCE, it's business as usual. You get 100% fee for service. Um, 
then CMS is going to pay the DCE their monthly capitated um, rate, depending upon the decisions that were made. They're going to look at the prior year performance. They're going to look at the benchmarks to determine what that rate is. And then the DCE go, goes ahead and will reimburse both their participant and their preferred providers. Um, and with their funds, they decide what they want to um, place into some of these other value-based care opportunities or how they want to um, use their cash flow to drive that end surplus revenue. So I know I'm going a little fast here because we're, we're kind of running out of time, but let me quickly touch on the quality measures and then I'll open it up for some questions. So quality is very different in this program. They have isolated it to four quality measures as opposed to the quality measures that are out there now, which is a huge list. They withhold 5% of, of uh, the uh, payments for quality. So when you put this into to dollars, this is a significant amount. So people wanna pay attention to quality. The DCEs wanna pay attention to that. So what are the four quality measures? All of the DCEs have to adhere to unplanned admissions, readmissions, the consumer assessment of healthcare providers and systems, basically um, a survey that says, how well is your DCE doing? And that's one area that you don't have control over and something that you need to think about how you can get, um, how you can get some positive impact from that metric. And then depending upon what type of DCE you are, it's either timely follow-up for certain conditions, that's your standard in your new entrant DCEs. But if you're in one of the complex chronic condition DCEs, it's the days at home, the days spent at home. So those are your, your four quality measures. And the next slide, Tom. This slide goes over a little bit about um, the payment systems. I won't go into it in detail, but basically your first two years, you have the opportunity to earn all 5% back where in years I wrote three through five, but it's three through, uh, three through six, it's actually years three through five. Um, there is a continuous improvement goal, depending upon how you meet that, there's gating metrics and, and non-gating metrics, and you can be a high performer and actually earn over that 5%. So the last slide, um, I was gonna open this up for some considerations when you're going into direct contracting, but I'm just gonna have um, Tom put up kind of uh, the brainstorming that, that you've all just quickly done in your heads um, of all things to consider as you um, participate as a direct contracting entity. Um, and then I've got uh, both my email and Chris's email that if you'd like to reach out, if you have any questions, the appendix goes through a little more detail um, that's not on the slide. So some of my talking points are in there. And I will open that up for question because we're down to our final couple minutes here. So happy to take any questions that anyone has. Anybody has any questions, you can just unmute. I'm I'm gonna take the prerogative of the of the person that asked you to speak. And uh, you know, Pam, I, honest to God, we could we could do a seminar on this. I mean, we could do a, a whole day seminar because uh, there's so many nuances that folks need to understand if they're going to get involved in this. And and I think you're becoming engaged in those things now. 
it's interesting to me that there are so many dynamics that are similar to what we have, I'm going to say endured or dealt with over the years. <clears throat> but one that I'm wondering about is the use of telehealth. A lot of what you provide are home health services. And even when I was medical director at a hospice, um, one of the things we were considering at that time, even before the pandemic, was the idea of using telehealth for home visits to, so that nurses essentially don't have to go out in the middle of the night and deal with folks who have got different kinds of issues. Um, have, have you implemented telehealth at Landmark? Yeah, we were um, going to do a slow rollout of telehealth until COVID hit, and then we did a really rapid rollout of telehealth. Um, and that was huge. Um, one of the, I, I hate to say barriers because nothing is a barrier, but one of the um, problems we had to solve for challenges was this patient population and um, their skill with technology. And um, it's, it's difficult for some of them. And we ask how they want to be communicated with and almost none will answer text or email. Um, so if a family member can be with them to help them, that is one resolution. Um, when we go out and do these urgent visits during the night, um, yes, we do send providers out there, um, but during the day when the providers are busy with full schedules, how do we be efficient um, and get both done without really impacting um, schedules of our providers. So we have used um, what we call our dentist extenders, nurses and other qualified personnel to go out to the, the home and do a telemed visit so they're there with them. Or we send um, our care coordinator, someone who is um, not um, medically, professionally medically trained, and they will go into the home of patients and they will set up the telehealth so that we can have more visits. And that allows one physician or one provider to be more efficient with the number of patients that they could see um, in a given day or in a given time period. Now, the drawback to some of this is when you look at documentation and how um, CMS uh, reimburses for with HCC coding, you have to actually capture that in the home with the patient. They did ease some of that during telemedicine, uh, during COVID and allowed some of that through telemedicine, um, whether they go back to all of that having to be face-to-face -face or not um, is to be seen. So Pam, so, but, Pam are you yeah. including remote monitoring as, as part of the big umbrella of telehealth? Yeah, so we did a pilot with remote monitoring um, with another company, and um, we did pick up a couple cases. It was tough to pick up AFib or things like that, or blood pressures that weren't well controlled. But a lot of our patients have their own blood pressure cuffs in the home, and we train them to call us if you get a high reading. Um, I went to a demonstration with a company out of Israel that was so cool. Um, they patient just sat at a table and they had this teeny little monitor, it was really small, like a little ball, smaller than a bottle of water that sat in front of them. And from that, they could do blood pressure, they could take heart rates, they could um, have you listen to heart sounds. It was incredible, but to get this monitor into the household of every patient is difficult. 
But I suspect in time, some of this remote monitoring and um, the remote ways that we can get into a patient's home without physically being in a patient's home um, will happen. But I think the value of the landmark program is getting into that home, seeing those things we don't otherwise see, um, a lot of hoarding that goes on. And, and when you think about our patient population, um, they're scared that we're going to take them out of the home if somebody comes in their home and sees their home in the condition that it's in, sees their refrigerator. And there are some things that I've seen that are sad um, and, and very, very difficult to deal with, um, knowing that a patient is living the way they are because of their resources. So the fact that we can come in and like you said, we could do a whole seminar, Don, I can give you stories of some of the patient success stories that we've been through that, um, you know, we'll have our clients as we, we always start our, our um, joint operating um, committee meetings and others with a patient story. And I can't tell you the number of times everybody's in tears in the room with the impacts that we can make. Um, so earning their trust to get in the home and be there for them. And a lot of times they feel like Landmark's the only person that really cares about them. And uh, we've brought birthday cakes and balloons and flowers to the homes of our patients at you know, certain, certain memorable times. Or um, there was one patient recently that we helped set up um, so that they could be at their grandchild's wedding at a distance. Um, so just, just through a Zoom. So um, I think that those are the, the things that Landmark gets by being in the home. And so although we know telehealth is good for our maintenance visits and um, can sometimes help with some of our urgent visits for our bread and butter visits, we need to be there. And that's, that's why we are so successful. Can you tell us what it is? We have, we have <laughs> actually gone a little bit over time, which I, I honestly, I could go, you know, another two or three hours here because you've got so much knowledge and, and, and experience with this. And I really wanna thank you for joining us today and bringing this to our, bringing this to the folks in the Pemba family. Um, I have, I'm convinced that what you're doing is the direction we're all going. And so my hope is, is that the message gets through and that people start making the adjustments, get the education they need now in order to be able to accommodate this in the future. So. With that, we're going to have to end, but gosh, thank you so very much for the information. Well, I want to thank all of you as well, and I, I hope that this was helpful. Like I said, I kept it at a high level, but I hope that it, it really brings home and, and helps you have a much better understanding of the program. So appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Pam. So have with that, everybody, day. thank you for joining us. Bye, Pam. Great to see you. Thank you. You too. Thanks.